The Jodcast, with Claire Bretherton, Fiona Healy, Mateusz Malenta, Ian Morrison, Benjamin Shaw, Prabhu Tiagaraj, and Charlie Walker. The Jodcast, April 2017 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Ben, and joining me in the studio are Charlie and Fiona. Hi. Hi, Ben. Yeah. How are you both doing? Getting that? Yeah. 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 <clears throat> In the show this time, Prabhu interviews Dr. Alessandro Navarini about new technologies for radio telescopes. And Ian Morrison and Claire Bretherton take a look at what's happening in the April night sky. <sighs> but first, before all of that, here's Matt with this month's news. This month in the news. With the latest season of the Formula One now underway, we will once again spend the next month marvelling at some of the fastest cars on the earth. But as much as racing around a circuit at speeds exceeding 300 kilometers per hour may be unimaginable for most of us, this is nothing compared to what some stars in our own Milky Way have to offer. The newest data collected with the help of the Australia Telescope Compact Array and NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory and NUSTAR confirms the previous findings of the 2015 study which showed the first evidence for the existence of a low-mass X-ray binary in a dense and massive globular cluster 47 Tucani. At the distance of around 4.5 kiloparsecs, that is almost 15,000 light-years away from the Earth. Called X9, it is the brightest X-ray source in the core of this globular cluster. It is currently believed to be an ultra-compact binary consisting of a white dwarf and a black hole. And the white dwarf is a champion of speed. Light curves obtained with the help of the facilities mentioned before show that it orbits its host solar mass black hole once every 28 minutes and 10 seconds. With the separation between the two components of two and a half of Earth-Moon distances, the white dwarf travels at the speeds of more than 3,570 kilometers per second, or around 1.2% the speed of light, a speed most unimaginable for most of us. Scientists were previously uncertain of the true nature of the objects that make up this binary. Previous data pointed towards a white dwarf pulling matter from a sun-like star in its orbit. But the 2015 discovery of a black hole in the system by Dr. Miller-Jones and his team gave the first indication of the real composition of the system. New data and careful simulations allowed scientists to find new evidence to support the theory of white dwarf black hole binary, which is currently the first and the only one of its kind identified in our galaxy. Well, now we are going to Mars. We think that we're going. Maybe, possibly, nobody really knows. On Tuesday, the 21st of March, US President Donald Trump signed S.442, 
National Aeronautics and Space Administration Transition Authorization Act of 2017, the first authorization act for NASA signed in seven years. For most of the text, the current government reflects on the current position of NASA, its past achievements, and programs already underway. NASA is encouraged to work with its industrial partners in order, and I quote here, improve its efficiency and effectiveness, and to streamline existing programs and requirements, procurement practices, institutional footprint, and bureaucracy. While preserving effective program oversight, accountability, and safety, the importance of the International Space Station is recognized, and the United States will aim, after consultations with other participating nations, to operate it until at least 2024, when the station will have been operational for 26 years. More than two and a half times the lifespan of its direct predecessor, the Mir space station, and there is also possibility of extending the lifetime of the ISS until at least 2028. The document, however, notes that NASA should not rely on its international partners to send astronauts to and back from the International Space Station, and therefore devote a significant amount of effort. To the development of system capable of safely delivering the astronauts to the low Earth orbit, the commercial crew program which brings NASA and its industrial partners such as SpaceX or Blue Origin together is scheduled to achieve this goal by the end of 2018, so in less than two years' time. However, it is the section on the advancing human deep space exploration that drew the most attention. As it describes the path towards the moon, Mars, and asteroids that NASA will take in the years to come, the document states again that NASA should work closely with members of the private industry, its international partners, and academics all around the world in order to reach Mars. Space Launch System and the Orion spacecraft remain the government's preferred transportation system. And the Authorization Act sets a timeline for the development and testing phases of the new vehicle, with the first unmanned mission in 2018 and the first manned mission by 2021. Many people have hoped for a stronger support for the plan that would eventually take humans straight to Mars by the mid 2030. The new administration, however, strongly emphasizes the need for a cis-lunar mission first. With missions to the orbit and later the surface of Mars in the years afterwards, this can be a disappointment for those hoping for NASA to be pushed towards focusing all its efforts on the manned mission to Mars and skipping the lunar exploration. Some experts are of the opinion that returning to the Moon will slow the whole program down, not contribute significantly to the developments of any new technologies. And procedures, and will only mean less time and money for the actual mission to Mars. On the other side of the barricade are those who see sending humans to the orbit around the Moon as an essential step that will allow us to test the technology and develop new safety procedures during much shorter and less dangerous mission. Both camps have one thing in common, though: none of these plans can come true if the level of funding that NASA receives remains at the current levels. 
With the funding for 2017 at little over $19.5 billion, NASA will have to show a level of scrutiny, cuts and money management never before seen at the agency in order to be able to fund the ambitious plans for the human deep space exploration laid down by the new government and its other scientific programs including the James Webb Space Telescope and the Earth Science Division. The new administration also requested $30 trillion for the construction of a wall around the Earth at the low of orbit in order, and we quote here, keep these pesky aliens away and control the flow of extraterrestrials. The Galactic Senate is expected to pay the whole price. Despite what many people can think, science is not only about big academic institutions and government organizations with arguably large sums of money at their disposal. In the current age, when we can access huge databases halfway across the globe at the click of the button, everyone can contribute. Astronomy Rewind is the newest so-called citizen science project launched as part of the Zooniverse platform, which should be well known amongst our listeners for Galaxy Zoo, now almost a decade-long project aimed at the classification of a vast number of galaxies, and our very own Jodrell Bank launched more recent but not less successful Pulsar Hunters. This new project looks at an often neglected problem in astronomy, the preservation of old images and data. As we have newer, faster and more accurate instruments at our disposal, we very often forget about older data taken over the course of decades that can still offer valuable information even though we can be centuries old. The first round of Astronomy Rewind will focus on finding and creating a database and ultimately preserving figures from papers found in the journals published by the American Astronomical Society. The extracted images will be later released to the public and incorporated in the Worldwide Telescope, an open-source software first developed by Microsoft Research and now managed by the AAS, which offers a set of tools for visualizing the astronomical data and the digital sky map. This particular project does not require any technical knowledge. The volunteer is presented with an image which has to be classified using a small selection of criteria. As anyone can really distinguish between a table or a single figure or multiple figures and whether they have axes or not, this is a truly a project that every person passionate not only about astronomy, but also history, can help with. So get your friends and start classifying right now. Thanks for that news, Matt. I hope it was some good stuff. Um, some good news. Now, Prabhu interviews Dr. Alessandro Navarini about Pharos, a phased array feed for radio telescopes. Welcome, Dr. Alessandro Navarini. We are happy to have you today for the Jodcast. We would like to know about your visit to Jodlbank. Uh, yes, uh, I'm here with the INAF, the Italian National Institute for Astrophysics at the Cagliari Astronomy Observatory, here for a collaboration with the Jodl Bank Observatory to work on, on a phased array feed instrument named FAROS, which is an acronym for Phased Arrays for Reflector Observing Systems. FAROS was developed in the framework of an European collaboration aiming at producing affordable, low-noise phase array uh, uh, to be installed in the focal plane of large radio telescopes. 
Indeed, phase array feeds receiver systems are one of the key technologies for the future of radio astronomy. Could you like to tell us a little more about what are phased array feeds? Yes, so they are a type of focal plane array in which uh, antenna elements are closely spaced so that uh, they c- do not act independently, but instead act uh, as a sensors of uh, the electromagnetic field across the plane of the telescope. The outputs of the receivers are then coherently combined in a beamformer with appropriate weights to synthesize several discrete beams which can be steered electronically. So therefore, by collecting and then manipulating the entire field, electric field in the telescope focal plane, such arrays can simultaneously offer improvements in the efficiency of existing radio telescopes and open up the widest possible field of view. The beam properties can be uh, manipulated electronically and made to adapt to the optics of any radio telescope by synthesizing multiple simultaneous beams on the sky for complete coverage of the available field of view, without loss of sensitivity in each beam. As a result, the survey speed figure of merit is expected to increase dramatically. That's why the phase array feed technology is one of the technologies currently under investigation for the next world's largest radio telescope, the Square Kilometer Array, known as SKA. Wonderful. Would you like to tell us why you are likely to test this instrument before it's used in the Jodelbang telescope? Yeah, so for uh, one of the my of my near-term goals is to help testing the Pharos phase array feed, uh, and uh, this this is a cryogenic instrument uh, designed to operate across the four to eight gigahertz band, uh, with, that we name C band, uh, which is going to be installed in Lowell Telescope, the Lowell 66 uh, 76 meter uh, radi- diameter radio telescope. And in addition, I would like to contribute to develop a, a second generation of such instrument which could possibly be deployed in the SRT, which is an acronym for the Sardinia Radio Telescope. Dr. Alessandro Navarini, would you like to also tell us what is the Sardinia Radio Telescope? Yeah, so the Sardinia Radio Telescope is a new Italian facility for radio astronomy that has uh, recently started an, an early science program. The antenna is a fully steerable uh, wheel and track dish with a 64 meter in diameter, uh, located 35 kilometers north of uh, Cagliari on the Sardinia island. The telescope completes a set of three antennas devoted to radio astronomical science in Italy, and all are managed by the Italian National Institute for Astrophysics, INAF. The other two antennas are the 32 meter dish in Medicina near Bologna in central Italy, and the 32 meter dish in Noto in Sicily. The SRT is a general-purpose uh, radio telescope aimed at uh, operating with a high aperture efficiency, and uh, once all the planned receivers are installed, it will observe uh, in the frequency range uh, from uh, 300 MHz to approximately 100 GHz and beyond. It means from approximately 1 meter and uh, to 3 millimeter in wavelengths. The SRT is capable of hosting many microwave receivers uh, located in four different uh, antenna focal positions, the primary, the secondary, and the two uh, B-wave guide focal points. And uh, it will be able to cover almost continually, uh, continuously uh, its, uh, the, this frequency range. The SRT will operate in single dish, continuum, full stokes, and spectroscopy, very large baseline interferometry, the VLBI mode, and also the space science modes. Thanks to its uh, large aperture and uh, versatility, which means uh, multi-frequency agility and wide frequency coverage, the SRT is expected to have a major impact in a wide range of scientific areas for many years to come. 
a key features of the SRTs is uh, active surface, total composed by over a thousand electromechanical actuators, which are able to correct the deformations induced by gravity on the primary surface. Would you like to also tell us how important this telescope is going to be in the scientific observations? Uh, so the operations in the framework of uh, international VLBI and pulsar timing networks are of top priority for the SRT. The SRT is going to be one of the most sensitive European VLBI network, uh, EVN stations, uh, together with the Effersberg and the Jodl Bank. Uh, its large aperture is also of extreme importance for the space VLBI observations with a uh, radio astron. The SRT is expected to have a major impact also for single-dish observations. Uh, in particular, we aim at exploiting its uh, capability to operate with a high efficiency at high radio frequency. Uh, it will be equipped with uh, multi-feed receivers, uh, and uh, this it can play a major role in conducting wide-area surveys of the sky in a frequency range essentially between 20 and 90 gigahertz, which is poorly explored, yet very interesting. For, ex for instance, the, the first light uh, K-band 7-beam receiver will be exploited to obtain extensive mapping of the ammonia in the galactic star forming regions in close synergy with existing infrared and some millimeter continuous surveys of the galactic plane. Another interesting application of the K-band uh, multi-feed receiver is uh, a line survey of, uh, of uh, water lines uh, in nearby, of nearby galaxies. Uh, this will increase the number of detected water masers and derive distances, dynamical models, and uh, total masses uh, matter of the galaxies in the local group. Wideband multi-feed receivers operating at a higher frequency in the range between 40 and 90 gigahertz uh, currently are, are in development and uh, will allow us to get access to unique molecular line transitions in our own galaxy, like for example those associated with uh, the deuterated molecules, which are crucial to constrain the kinematic and chemical properties of prestellar cores, as well as to uncover the cool molecular content of the universe in a crucial uh, cosmic uh, interval redshifts uh, between, let's say, 0.3 and 2 through the mapping of uh, redshift at CO low J transition. Due to an agreement between INAF and the Italian Space Agency on the use of the instrument for space applications, the SRT will also be involved in uh, planetary radar astronomy and uh, space missions. You mentioned the surface accuracy of the telescope is very important for the high-frequency observations. Is that right? It is absolutely important, and uh, the aim is to have a surface accuracy uh, which is approximately uh, 20 times less than the minimum wavelength that they want to operate the telescope, which is uh, 3 millimeters. So we aim at uh, getting a surface accuracy of, of order of 150 microns RMS, corresponding to 20 times less than 3 millimeter. A wavelength, which is uh, 100 gigahertz operating frequency. So what happens if the surface accuracy is not uh, sufficient? Well, the efficiency of the radio telescope will decrease uh, dramatically with, uh, with uh, RMS uh, errors of the surface. So we, if we want to have a, a good uh, ef efficiency, antenna efficiency, we need to have to keep this uh, RMS of the surface uh, to a lowest possible value. How do you verify the surface is matched to what is required? So there are, uh, we have a couple of uh, ways of doing this currently. First we use uh, photogrammetry and indeed we run uh, several uh, photogrammic campaigns during the setting up of the 
surface for the primary but also for the secondary mirror and uh, with the photogrammetry uh, essentially uh, you uh, take a, a special camera that and many many pictures of the surface from different positions and uh, you can uh, by putting some uh, reflectors on uh, attaching some reflectors on on the surface that to be analyzed you can recover the the shape uh, and then the RMS of uh, of the surface and uh, with for the SRT uh, the photogrammetry campaigns which were made uh, allowed to obtain uh, an RMS of uh, below uh, 300 microns that's really astonishing and it looks like there's large amount of uh, new methods need to be developed like uh, even sometimes even you have a simple method such as a photograph the surface could be used for even studying the surface accuracy it's one it's really interesting to know this yes that's uh, is one of the technique there is also another technique that uh, we are uh, aiming of applying to the to the telescope with, to improve the surface accuracy which is uh, holography uh, so we are actually uh, developing a holog holographic system operating around uh, uh, 11 gigahertz that uh, will allow to hopefully to set up the, the primary uh, mirror uh, RMS to within the 150 microns RMS which uh, are required as a specification for the telescope. It will also be interesting to know how the active system uh, works with the Sardinia radio telescope. Yeah, so one of the most uh, innovative features of the SRT is the active surface that consists of uh, over a thousand uh, electromechanical actuators which are mounted in the backup structure beneath the primary mirror panel corners and uh, distributed along the radial lines. Its uh, first aim is to reshape the mirror to compensate for the repeatable deformations due to gravity. Exploiting uh, advanced real-time measurements uh, will also correct for wind and thermal effects. And this is something that uh, we want to implement in the near future. So e essentially we have uh, actuators and each actuator moves either upward or downward at the corners of four adjacent panels in direction normal to the local surface with a maximum stroke of plus or minus 15 millimeter. Such a large stroke was required in order to achieve the second aim for, for this active surface, which is to modify the shape profile back to a surface that is parabolic enough to increase the maximum operating frequency observable, observable from the primary focus. Also, it will be interesting to know how complex the electronics development for this telescope. Do you get these electronics readily bought from the commercially available technology or you have to develop uh, in-house? So, uh, for example, the front ends were uh, completely developed in-house. Uh, we have a uh, front-end group, which is uh, not located in one singular, single place in Italy, but uh, is actually spread out at least three different uh, institutions. Uh, the main one being uh, in uh, Bologna area, together with uh, the one in Florence and in Cagliari, uh, in Sardinia. And uh, we work all together to develop uh, the cryogenic front ends for the different uh, frequency range require, required for the SRT, but also for the other Italian radio telescope and also for the international projects. When you say cryogenic, what is the temperature of operation of these uh, electronics? So the front ends uh, operate uh, uh, the, the coldest stage that we use uh, in uh, cryogenic front ends up to 
for the SRT, which go up to 100 gigahertz approximately, are based on a 15 Kelvin, 15 to 20 Kelvin uh, cryogenic stage. Uh, so it's a s- quite a simple cryogenic systems which are commercially available. We develop uh, uh, not the cryogenics, but uh, the, the components which go into the uh, receivers, like uh, the amplifiers, the feed horn, the optics, uh, cryogenic optics, which go into into receivers together with uh, the filtering uh, and uh, all the processing of the uh, which is required in a receiver chain. Why is it required to cool the devices to such low temperature? It, this is because we have uh, the one of the target uh, is to have as the lowest possible uh, receiver noise performance for for the system. The the sig- astronomical signal are extremely weak, so we need to have very low noise in order to the system, in order to detect these signals and uh, decrease the integration time in order to get a reasonably uh, good uh, signal-to-noise ratio for the observations. Is there any particular good time of the year that is good for operating the Sardinia radio telescope? Yes, so it depends on which uh, frequency uh, you are interested in observing. For example, uh, if you are interested in low frequency, uh, low frequency for us means uh, a few hundred megahertz or a few, gig- few gigahertz, uh, y- it, the telescope can operate most any time, essentially. Also, uh, during, during uh, of course, daytime and also with the cloud, uh, and also with rain at the lowest frequencies, like 300 megahertz. But if you are interested in a higher frequency, like in the 3 millimeter band, 100 gigahertz, then you need a, a very a good uh, weather conditions, and in particular, very low uh, water vapor content in the, atmosf- in the atmosphere. And uh, for these observations at the highest, at the highest frequencies, it's necessary uh, to have. Usually, these are these are run during the winter time, uh, because the atmospheric conditions are better for for those observations. And finally, could you tell us what's the ad- what is the difference between radio telescope as against the normal telescopes where we can use our eyes to see. Why do we need a radio telescope? Yes, so uh, why? Uh, radio uh, is, uh, is um, uh, electromagnetic spectrum uh, as you know is, uh, is a very uh, very broad and uh, the radio is one of um, is a low energy corresponds to the low energy part of the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, our eyes are sensitive to the radiation coming in the frequency range uh, approximately between uh, 0.5 microns, uh, and this is the typical w- wavelength of uh, which is uh, for which our eyes are sensitive. But the the radio is a much longer uh, wavelength, and uh, this uh, the emissions at radio wavelengths is uh, uh, is produced mostly from uh, uh, the cold universe. So, uh, the, in the, uh, if we study, for example, the millimeter waves emissions, we observe uh, objects uh, uh, that emits, uh, which are cold objects. For example, the, the cold molecular clouds from which stars are being formed. So, we we need, in order to see the sites of star formations, for example, to observe uh, those frequencies. Uh, because the the radiation millimeter wave radiation is uh, can go through the interstellar gas and, and the interstellar dust that uh, prevents the optical 
emissions to to go through while the radio ones can can be detected from uh, from us could you tell us about the optical system of the sardinia radio telescope so the the srt optical system is based on a quasi gregorian profile with uh, shaping applied to both the primary and the secondary surfaces the present geometry results from a trade off between uh, two goals uh, on one side is uh, we want to minimize the overall system noise temperature uh, mainly due to spillover and uh, the other goal is to reduce the standing wave pattern without uh, excessively sacrificing the sacrificing the field of view available from the gregorian focus it will be interesting to know the 64 meter diameter of the telescope uh, how it will be used at the different frequencies is the entire surface used for all the frequencies or a portion of it mm, not the, the entire surface will be used at all frequencies yes this is really interesting thank you uh, dr alessandro navarini and we are delighted to have you for the interview today and we look forward to be working with uh, sardinia radio telescope thank you thanks Thanks for that, Prabhu. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. Well, sadly we don't actually have any odds and ends this time. Um, but what I will say is that a couple of weeks ago we were the recipients of some very sad news. Um, two weeks ago we got notification that with the new tax year, um, we will no longer be receiving any funding to run the jodcast and that funding um is what allows us to actually do this and allows us to take a little bit longer to do our phd's in order to keep the jodcast going um in this new tax year the council that funds us will no longer be doing so and for that reason the jodcast will be taking an indefinite hiatus um and so what i thought might be nice is if we could all just talk a little bit about our memories of the jodcast and and how we how we feel about what's happening today um yeah so fiona what's your first memory of the jodcast i remember i was sitting in my office and uh, i was probably doing no work um <laughs> as is the one to the phd <laughs> yeah, student exactly um but i was sitting at my desk and christina smith came into the office and she said i need a jodcast presenter right now because someone's pulled out uh, and since I didn't want to be doing any work I said okay yeah okay I'll do it um and uh they came in and I and I and I presented my first podcast and uh it was a lot of fun I was a little bit nervous about my odd and end because I came like really prepared I had like a load of notes and I, I read up on the other people's odds and ends so I could think of intelligent questions to ask them. <laughs> <laughs> Can you remember what your first odd and end was? It was something about I think it was like diamond rain on one of Jupiter's moons or something somewhere. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, it was cool. It was it was nice. I I don't remember the details, but Diamond uh, rain sounds like it would hurt. Yeah, yeah, it would. I and I forget what the discussion even was. Was it diamond rain? 
Or was someone else's ad and then Diamond Rain? I remember Diamond Rain. It was Diamond Rain. There'd be a lot of um, insurance claims for new conservatory roofs. Well, like, it would be really hard to have an umbrella that would actually work. Yeah. Unless the umbrella was also made out of diamond. (laughs) Which would probably be quite pricey. But then if it's raining diamonds, they're probably not as valuable. Well, exactly. So, yeah. Um, So, anyway, so, yeah. Um... And, uh, and I had all my notes written out. When you compare that to now, I mean, I've progressed from having my notes written on my arm to, like, just not even writing any notes anymore. I come in with my odd and end in my head and I just talk about it. And, uh, yeah. And um, when people tell me their odd and ends, I, I no longer come up with intelligent questions, but generally just fire out the first random thoughts that come into my head when I hear them. <laughs> <laughs> the editor has a... That is very much what you do in life as well. What, just me specifically or, or everyone? You. Oh, just me specifically. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so, Charlie, what's your, when were you first exposed to the Jodcast? What's your, when, when did you first become aware of it? I mean, I can't remember the date that I first was on the Jodcast, but, you know, I can't even remember how I was even told about it. I think I might have stumbled behind the lecture theatre and seen a load of bedding and all sorts of carpet and wondered whether there was someone squatting here and asked around and then realised that it was soundproofing for our little studio. Although, didn't somebody squat in here once? I have stumbled in on other occasions since taking over and seen someone asleep on the bedding and asleep on the carpets. Should we have these duvets laundered? Uh, Yeah, maybe. I mean, apparently that some of these carpets have carpet moths in them as well. I suppose it doesn't matter anymore, does it? Yeah, I mean, I'm... I mean, maybe we could sell them. I don't have a really poor them. I'm quality not sure they have any resale value, to be honest. But I mean, it is a good question. The carpet tiles, right? It is a good question. What are we going to do with all this excess stuff? Oh, I mean, we can donate it to yeah. charity. We can, um, yeah. I mean, if it helps someone somehow, yeah. we could we could all sign the bed sheets and maybe give it away as a last competition. I don't know. Would somebody pay money for that? So the question is where these bed sheets <laughs> came from in the first place. Yeah, and I don't. Actually, no, I'm just looking around now. Nice. I'm looking this, at this one here looks fairly clean. I'm but... leaning up against it right now and I'm starting to feel like I shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, it's probably not a great idea. Unless, but I mean, looking you know... around the studio, we've got more than ugly bed sheets. We've got all these nice postcards which we've collected over the years as well. Yeah. Uh, we had a nice clean up. It's, um, it's a shame that we haven't been able to add to it a little bit more. Uh, we've got some photos up there. Was it Josie who organised everything so nice? It was Monique. It was Monique, yeah, of was course. Monique. Sorry, Monique. Yeah. She gave the studio yeah, a real overhaul yeah. and put every postcard we've got. There are also the same number of postcards again in the tea room, so this is only half of them. Um, but you can just see looking at this wall just, you know, how, how far and wide the Jodcast has, has been heard all these years. We've got, you know, postcards here from every continent, very many countries. Both hemispheres, yeah. It's, um, yeah. There's, different postage stamps from all over the world it's it's lovely we've um, yeah we've reached out to lots of people all over the world so yeah. I mean, it's a shame really it's a sad thing yeah, but if we can sad. help people once more with some bed sheets then absolutely if, you, if you'd <laughs> yeah. like our studio bed sheets do feel yeah. free to get in touch our email address is still working nice to think that we'd have a lasting legacy with our, with our job yeah bed sheets. I mean we've yeah. got a bit more than that because I'm looking up on the other side of the studio and we've got some nice photos up there mm. um, from Jogcast Live, which was last year. It's uh, we've passed our eleventh anniversary now, so I mean it's a good age. Like if your dog lived till eleven, then that's a good age, isn't it? My cat lived till seventeen. Mm. Yeah, 
Cats sleep a lot, though. That's true. Yeah, we true. on the Jogcast don't sleep much. I no. sleep a lot. I, I you don't. guys don't, though. <laughs> um, but I, I first heard of the Jogcast uh, long before I was even an undergraduate. I used to listen to it, and it's actually one of the things that was instrumental in me deciding to do physics. This Seriously? This, this and astronomy cast made me want to wow. quit my job and study astrophysics. And, and Manchester? Did you come to Manchester because... I think it was probably... I mean, I became aware of Manchester and the kind of things we do here because of the Jodcast. And, mm. you know, the first thing... The first Jodcaster I met was Megan, and I knew who Megan was before I'd met her because uh-huh. I recognised her voice. And then... Well, isn't she, like, one strange. of the... She's one of the top three um, search results that comes up when you Google the Jodcast. She is, indeed. Yeah, Jodcast, yeah. and then Megan um, Argo is one of the suggestions. Very few Jodcaster names appear when you yeah. Google the Jodcast. And then Matt Perver was in my research group, and I knew who he was when he, he, he made a comment about something over Pulsar Lunch, and, yeah. and I was like, oh, that's Matt Perver. I was like, <laughs> I'd even been introduced to people. Did you go so. and get their autographs? Or? No, no, I thought that would be too much. You were much, like, be but, cool, be cool, Ben. But yeah, it's, it's been a, a real privilege from, you know, going from being a listener to, to being the executive producer of the show, and it's, it's it's really nice, and we I think over the last course of the year, while well, well, Charlie and I have been uh, in charge of the in charge of the show, I think we've we've done some pretty good stuff. I thought Jodcast Live was a triumph. Oh yeah, oh, it was amazing. Oh, that was lovely. It was um, it was rough while preparing, but it all pulled together on the day. Yeah, much more spectacular way than I ever thought it would. It was a great. It was just great. I mean, we we planned episode. that for months and months, and then we actually planned it with almost military precision yeah and it was when we were actually we got to the venue a couple of hours before we were due to let people in um and i remember being completely useless to everybody it just unfolded i didn't need to do anything it had all just been planned not you know that that didn't mean you stopped trying to do things so. no but i just i, just <laughs> I stopped remember and, you tearing around the place l- yeah i just stopped and looked around the room and I just mean, realized that it was happening in yeah. spite of me and it was it was fantastic <laughs> it was it, well, we it was were just, we were the hosts so we got to say a few things I yeah mean, i remember standing at the back during the uh Panel, Ask an the astronomer. astronomer yeah. Panel, oh, yeah, yeah. Really wishing that I'd been on the panel as well. I would have loved that. <sighs> I feel like for, I was supposed to be on it, but then someone else was on it, or did I back out? Or first, like I remember thinking, oh, I might do that. And I then, think you were on as a reserve, but then we got. Uh, um, that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. People. Yeah, no, because I was thinking the same. I was like, yeah. yeah. kind of wish I was on that now. But, yeah. but also, it was fun. just nice to be able to stand at the back of the room and just watch what we'd. Yeah, and, uh, what we'd created. One of our yeah. listeners came up to me and said he usually listens to the podcast um, with, you know, slightly sped up so that he can fit it into his journey to work. Yeah. Uh, but he said he has to slow it down for the bits where I'm talking. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, I hope uh, he's not varying the speed in real time as yeah. he's driving. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe he takes the bus. <laughs> <laughs> one would hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Mm. So, Fiona, do you have a favourite memory of the show? Um, well, I was thinking about that before we before we started recording here, and I was just thinking about all the Jodcasters past that I used to that I used to record with. So, um, about Christina, who I already mentioned, who was my introduction to the Jodcast, and who's a very dear friend, uh, who's in Toronto now. Um, I mean, as far as I can tell, driving the Mars rover, although whenever I say that, she's like, oh, no, technically that's not what I do, but I feel like it's actually what she does. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to put technically in front of that sentence, because yeah. you know you're doing well for yourself. Yeah. So. Um, and I remember having a lot of fun recording with Josie Peters in Oxford now, and with Hannah Stacey, who... Uh, is now in the Le- Netherlands, Is right? now in the Netherlands, yeah, yeah doing really well, um, mm. doing her PhD. Uh, I think... Um, has bought a house or something in Groningen. She's really cool. Um, yeah, she's a, uh, she, she was a lot of fun to record with. We used to laugh a lot. 
Mm. People used to complain. It's great. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Had complaints as well. But I mean, <laughs> women <we've> had... giggling, <laughs> as I think specifically referring to me and Hannah. <laughs> I mean, we've had we've had people who've said they like the uh, the laughter and the humour. I think yeah. that's one thing that's changed a little bit over the last uh, year and a bit. Is um, we are, we've cut less of the air. <laughs> yeah, the show has got longer. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's, it's it's gone from a sixty-minute match to a ninety-minute match at least. Yeah. Usually, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. So it's pushing a hundred minutes most months. I think. So, mm. yeah. I mean, yeah, so. well, I mean, at least did... there's more more there for people to listen to over and over again now. Absolutely, I think we've got an impressive back catalogue. So anybody that's new to the show can go back over over ten, eleven years of of archives. And I mean, Ben, do you have a particular episode that you remember working on in any sort of capacity uh, that you'd recommend people to listen back to? Apart from Jodcast Live, I thought the um, December 2015 extra or 2016 extra, I can't remember which, it was where I interviewed Ralph Spencer and it was a really good interview. We went to Jodrell Bank and talked about his research and we could have gone on for hours, but of course we had to cut it to about 40 minutes because it was starting to get too long. Um, but we could have gone on a lot longer. But yeah, I think my favourite episode has to be that episode. So that's a real coincidence, actually, because um, I was thinking about the December 2015 extra as well. It's, it's 2015, um, okay. 2015 extra, yeah. It's um, because that is the episode where I've done my most memorable interview, which was with um, Professor Frank Close from ah, Oxford. Yeah. Um, and it was about Mr. Neutrino, the father, new, the father of neutrino astronomy, this mm. guy called Bruno Pontecorvo, and it was just a fascinating tale. He'd started off trying to write the uh, scientific biography of this guy, Bruno Pontecorvo, um, but it turned into almost a mystery novel in the end. I mean, it's a very factual book, but this guy was—he um, really contributed to neutrino, neutrino astronomy, but he never won a Nobel Prize, even though he inspired three different Nobel prizes, um, and. And that's probably down to the fact that he disappeared in 1950 um, and reappeared five years later uh, at a conference in Soviet Union. He he defected, and um, that followed him all his life. And it's just it was a fantastic interview. Uh, it's the one I remember the most actually. Mm. I just remember having a we sort of talked down the Schuster building, and um, I came and just asked him all the questions that I was thinking. And that's one of the great things about doing interviews here is yeah. um, you can just get the lecturers and the interviewers and the interviewees who've come to give really good talks in Manchester and just you know, yeah. ask them whatever's on your mind. And, and that's the nicest thing about this show as well is I think it's, been, it's given us the opportunity to meet some quite high-profile people as well. We've, well, we've you had guys all met kinds Buzz of Aldrin. people. Yeah, um, that was... yeah Charlie, yeah. Uh, Mark, yeah. Sally interviewed Buzz. Uh, we've been able to get Crash BBC Stargazing Live, which unfortunately isn't at Jodrell Bank this year. That would we've have had... been a nice send-off, wouldn't it? Mm. It's, um, it's, it's a shame it was in Australia. I mean, if they can't yeah. afford to keep us going, they probably can't afford to send us to Australia. Probably either. not, no. Mm. Yeah, so, yeah, that's yeah. true. Uh, we tried to keep the costs down as much as possible over the years. I think that would be pushing it too <laughs> yeah, far. Exactly. Mm. Um, but we've had Professor Jocelyn Balbanel, we've had Brian Cox and Dara. We've had obviously had Chris Lintot about seven Chris, times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's a good friend of the show. Lucy Green, Professor Lucy Green. As yeah, well. yeah, uh, absolutely. Matt uh, Taylor from the uh, Rosetta Mission, which was a great interview. And of course, we didn't do this, but Sir Bernard Lovell has been jobcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, and don't they? I mean, you played a bunch of sound bites at the start of the live show, um, mm. where you had like a bunch of famous people. Mm. Yeah, that's what I was going through mentally in my head. Uh, so interesting. Carol, so, Carol, Carol Alderman Alderman as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Royal yeah. astronomer Martin Rees was yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Lord Rees. 
Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, 11 years, oh, lots of success. It's not bad going, is it? It's it's had a good run. It has. I think we can look back on it with pride, actually. And obviously it wasn't just us. We took no, over no, right at the end of his lifetime. fifth executive producer of the yeah. show, I think. I we? feel like we failed, in a way, you know? Because we haven't you kept it like, going. You feel right. like you've run it into the ground. Yeah, I mean... But you haven't, I guess. Well, I mean, everyone here looks a bit more tired than two years ago. <laughs> so maybe we have, in a You way. have definitely not run it into the ground. Mm. <laughs> well, let's hope not. Um, yeah. Just, I mean, just because you'll go down in history is that executive producers who uh, saw the death of the Jodcast doesn't doesn't mean anybody's going to think of you as I prefer failure. to see it as captain going <laughs> down with the ship um, as opposed to rats leaving it rats going <laughs> off <laughs> <laughs> moving on to greener pastures like the BBC yeah. yeah I mean to be fair the three of us here um, have done a little bit of stuff for other places we've been on uh Rocket Science. Rocket Science, which is the University of Manchester's physics, or just science in general, radio show. Um, we've done a little bit of stuff for Radio 5. We've, yeah. We've, we've got, you know. Yeah, if you miss us, you can hear us you every can week probably on Radio 5. You us around yeah. at some point. Um, and other jobcasters as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah Monique does a lot of outreach talks. If you live in Manchester, you could Google Monique and go and see one of her talks. You can get Megan and I think Mark and Jen Gupta. Yeah, seldom serious. I mean, they yeah. celebrated their year's anniversary and they actually forgot about it. Yeah, um, but we forgot about our 11th birthday yeah. as well, didn't we? So, so it's, yeah, it's, it's not an easy thing to remember. It's because we're still recovering from the live show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's. I mean, people wanted another live show. Maybe there'd be a. a we'll have a reunion one, one, one day yeah. in another yeah. five years. Who knows? Should we? Yeah. So now, um, I guess for the last hurrah, on to uh, onto someone who's been planning to abandon the ship for a while. Actually, hang on a minute, Charlie. Where's he gone? I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> Maybe he's gone to jump off the bridge. Should we go after him? Ben's really sad. He's really sad about it. I'm this. just really worried about I'm, how he's taking this. I know he's got a, quite a deadpan face, but yeah. I mean, this is taking. He's taking it pretty hard. You can tell. And he's coming back. What is this? Oh, he's back now. Um, he's taking it really hard. Whoa. Whoa. Is this a hostage situation? What's happening? What's going on? Uh, we can't bring it back. Ben. Why? Why? Why is George here? I. Mm. Ben, why do you have George duct taped to a wheelchair? This this isn't going to end well for any of us. Like, is he acting out because of his grief? I, I'm wondering if he thinks we can get funding by hostaging George. I'm not sure. <laughs> who? So, mm. d- <coughs> Shut I don't up. know. I was just I mean, about to Alma... ask who'd pay a ransom for George, but that's not necessarily me. <laughs> I mean, Alma, Alma need him working on that stuff, so I don't know. Is it, what's going on? Would you like an explanation, or would you like to continue speculating for a bit longer? I mean, no, this is quite explain. fun. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, we can But yeah, 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 this could go on for a while, so. So you re- may remember in the April episode from last year, uh, George compiled his own number station and there was a num- uh, uh, an explanation of what a number station was in that episode and actually what we'll do is we'll play that excerpt for you now. Oh dear god I still don't know the answer to this. Oh, it's still creepy. It's tormenting well, me. 
Uh, I know plenty of people who really want to know this, actually. Yeah. Okay, so now you've heard that again, and um, George still hasn't revealed um, what that music and what those numbers actually meant. And I thought it would not be... Shut up, George. It would not be good to actually close the show without... I said shut up. Without finally revealing what that was. And so in order to do that, I've had to actually drag George in here against his will. Tied to a chair. Because we want the truth! I think we should. Well, I, I mean, he's not going to tell us anything with his mouth duct taped. Well, so let's, do you take, that, take, let's that take that off. off. I mean, a <laughs> little bit of the beard missing. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is. I'm not sure what to say. I mean, Just I'd like to know the you, answer as well. Are, are you going to tell us? But well, I was hoping people would work it out. Well, it's yeah. been a year, George, it's and been, I, we're I losing frankly. our minds. It's been a year. We can't wait any longer for the truth. <laughs> uh, I've, I've been trying to decode it. this for quite some time and quite honestly I'm starting to forget vital pin numbers I've so, had numbers on my office wall I see the numbers time, when I shut my eyes and nothing is coming out and the fact it doesn't help that they're plays to a tune of an ice cream van or something as well it's the creepiest thing but I think it's been driving me mad it's incredibly creepy honest, yeah but number stations I, are creepy and I want to know what this one means and it better not be mind numbingly banal it better be good so George it's Time to reveal all. What does the number station mean? Well, I was hoping people would work it out. No, that's not on. Come on, this is the end. Um, Once You know how the life on the internet works, right? Once the last episode airs, it's just done. Jogcast is over. People will forget immediately. No one will work it out. Do you want your legacy to be that? Maybe. What? Mystery George. The enigma for all time. No, you want to tell us? Some of those Cause we want to know. last a long time, you know. Yeah, well... Most of those don't have the person who created it tied to a chair, and we've got you here now. So, well, look. I mean, we have various persuasive options in our arsenal right now. So, I mean, we we have a lot of electrical power here. Could we perhaps apply some of that 
to George in order to extract the relevant information. Well, that could work. I mean, I've got a couple of. I think two hundred and forty volts to the temples might might tip the scales in our favour. Oh, but the the only socket though is the one the recorder is connected to. Ah. Yeah, and this is the one without the batteries, so true. We'd actually have to unplug. Oh, we'd have to stop recording. And then Hardware to limited. Again. Besides Fuck. which, I was electrocuted like uh, my first week in university uh, back in the United States. It's a nice, sweet memory from. Uh, okay, moving on. <laughs> yeah. Okay, <laughs> no, I think work. that's not going to work if it brings back sweet memories. Um, How about we get all the Alma machines from the Alma room and start throwing them one by one out the window until he talks? Yeah, I mean once. When George thought I'd unplugged an Ethernet cable from the armor machines, which I hadn't, he went absolutely crazy. He so is so protective of this. This is a quite machines. a good idea. Um, I was wondering though, Adam Averson is editing this episode, and he was so upset he couldn't even be here. Um, but I mean, he's got a job to look out for. So oh, that's I, true. I think that's true. He wouldn't he would, like it. He I think he might refuse to edit this episode. Yeah. So, did you bring the box? Oh, I have it, but like, I don't. Wanna open it? George, we have a box of scorpions. And we will release them <laughs> about yourself. Do we if have you to... don't reveal the contents Do we of have the to number station. Well I Well it would be a rather ineffective torture if we didn't. But like I don't want to. We'd just open be waving it. a box in his face. They're terrifying. Well I was going to say that like uh if I were to choose an animal from the animal kingdoms, it would definitely be scorpions that would terrify me. Oh, I can hear them like skittering about in there, and I gotta say, I really don't want this. Are they really skittering the about? It's like I'm used to scorpions being sort of like lazy. Why are you used to scorpions being anything? Well, it's uh. Oh, never mind. Doesn't matter. Mm. Scorpions I aren't going to work. Don't then. want to open this box. Honestly, um, I don't think I can do it. Could we do it? Could you? I mean, would you want to leave the room and we could do it, or do you actually? Would you like to see George? I just I want to hear the truth. I don't want to leave the room in case, you know, he reveals it and then you guys don't tell well, me. Well, obviously, yeah, it might I be wouldn't something. put that past you. Or maybe yeah. it's maybe it's something that, like, I don't know. Maybe I, just, I want to be that, here for this. Maybe it's something that when you hear, you have to keep secret. Yeah, yeah maybe. Um, um, okay. I mean, we do have one other last resort to go. So, I mean, we've known George now for a while and speaking to him, we've kind of managed to accumulate various little bits of information about George's likes, George's dislikes. I mean, you also live very close to him. You have a pair of binoculars in your flat. I imagine that you've been watching to see what he does and doesn't like. I have to go outside to do that because my flat face is the wrong way. But you're right. I have been staring into the contents of George's cupboard and there is an absolute absence absence of chilies, onions, pineapples and coffee. George, do you like either of these foods I've just listed? Well, no. How much do you dislike onions? Do they make you cry? Well, onion, raw onions make me cry. Um, oh, good. They, they aren't as bad as pineapples, though. Pineapples will actually make me gag. Oh, this is shaping up beautifully. What about coffee? Well, I just plainly don't like coffee. Excellent. And, and spicy food. Chilies. Just a, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's like I really hate the burning sensation from that. Well, what I have here... is a smoothie. <laughs> now, this smoothie contains bananas, a little bit of yoghurt, some onions, <laughs> a pineapple. I mean, we had to burn this smoothie machine after making this thing. Including spikes. 
This is worse than the time that someone made pasta in the uh, JBCA kettle. So. Some chilies <laughs> and some coffee grounds, just for good measure. Let's just give this one last shake. And you are going to drink this down immediately. Okay, okay, okay. okay. No, no, no. Okay. Oh, I can smell it from here. It's okay. It's okay. You it's said okay. okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, I'll give you the answer, or lead you through the answers. This is very good. You're still tied to the chair, even though you can talk. Well, I I don't know how good the mystery is, but uh, I can at least give you the answer. Or at least lead you how to get the answer. So I'm guessing that if people listen to the recording, uh, they would have heard the numbers in Spanish. Uh, Actually, read off by uh, Liz Guzman. And uh, we've written down the numbers, right? Yes. And what's the first thing that you think of in astronomy uh, related to numbers? There's a lot of stuff about numbers in astronomy, George. It's uh, all numbers. But, but sets of numbers. Um, Coordinates. Coordinates, yes. Huh. Ah, so Adam was... So so Adam was onto was, something. Yeah, he was thinking it was coordinates. I... Okay. Now, did anybody try typing the coordinates into uh, either the Simbad database or the NASA IPAC Extragalactic database? Adam said he tried typing them in Simbad. So, no. just for the um, listeners, shall we describe uh, yes. what the Simbad? Okay. So, the, uh, yeah, That's these are two databases that professional astronomers use, which just have information on all of the stuff in the sky. You can go to either of these uh, websites and just type in the coordinates, and it'll tell you what's there. Sometimes in way too much detail or in, like, too much in minutia, but it'll tell you what's there. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yes, these numbers are indeed right ascension and declination. So but, what? It was, it was six sets of five numbers each, was it? Yes. Although I also discovered... So there were three sets of coordinates there. Although I also discovered me looking at my notes a few months ago that, like, I had put the numbers in kind of peculiar order, so it's, Not on uh, purpose. Maybe. <laughs> did you want to make this impossible? Did you want to drive us mad? Because look where look you where are right now. Look where it's got you. Yes, it's... Uh, I mean, we've still the, got the, the chair. If this isn't good, we've still got the drink, so... But yes, yeah, no, I'm I'm going on, I'm going. Yeah. So it's uh, the first three sets of numbers were all right ascensions, and the second three sets of numbers were all declinations. And so, like uh, the first right ascension goes with the first declination, and the second uh, and third. Maybe and that's where Adam fell down then, because he said he was trying to put them into Simba, ah, but he was but, getting nowhere. But there was one other, actually, two other clues in the broadcast. The first one was the music. Yes, I hear that music in my sleep. <laughs> so, the music is my cheesy 8-bit rendition of the national anthem for Chile. <laughs> because what? we know how much you like chilies. <laughs> the nation of Chile, not the food stuff. Because I, I don't think they that. have a national anthem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, isn't that where Liz is now? Well, that's where Liz used to be, in mm. any case. And that's the other part of the clue. Is the fact that Liz read this. Liz is the clue. And which organization did Liz Guzman used to work with in Chile? I assume it was Alma, was it? Yes. So we've got, hang on, we've got three sets of coordinates. Alma and the Chilean national anthem. 
And the fact that there are several things that are associated with chili here says that you should do what with the coordinates? Put them in a curry? Eat them? <laughs> not, not Shove the curry down your throat if you don't like spicy food, because I'm getting close to that now, to be perfectly honest, George. Do I need to set this lid off again? Yeah. No. It's chili the country. It's a southern hemisphere telescope, so you put a negative sign in front of the declinations. Okay. Which is probably the bit which Adam didn't do. And if you put negative sign in front of the declinations, you will actually find uh, the coordinates for three very bright star-forming regions, which are actually, according to uh, the catalogs produced by the Planck satellite, the three brightest objects in the submillimeter in the southern hemisphere. So that's Sagittarius B2, M42, the Orion Nebula, and NGC 6334, which is something called the Cat's Paw Nebula. Oh, why is it called the Cat's Paw? Does it look like a cat? It looks like the Cat's Paw. Hence the designation, the Cat's Paw Nebula. I see, thank you. you know, there's also thank like... you for curing that up for me, Ben. <laughs> anyway, I didn't think this was going to be so difficult or that Ben was going to eventually tie me to a chair. I mean, don't you feel like you'd like to go out with the Jogcast? Just sort of go down with the ship? You're one of the longest running members. Well, I mean... I'm hoping not to disappear into the River Irwell. If, uh, <laughs> tied to an office chair. Wow. Given that the River Irwell's not that deep. No, we'd go for the Mersey. <laughs> Oh, there are mercy. geese there that would eat you alive. Ah. Oh, no, I hate the candy geese. Well, now the mystery has been solved. I'll untie his arms. There you go, you can stretch now. Oh, that's nice. Okay, after that really strange interruption, here's someone else who's been a really long-term, long-running jobcaster who's been with us since the beginning, actually. Uh, George, were you, have you been with the jobcast for the whole of the ten years? No, only five years. So even longer running than George. But as someone who's been planning to abandon his ship for a while, because he's set up his own Astronomy Digest, so if you want to hear more about the night sky in the future, I'm sure you can check out Ian Morrison's page. But here he is with this month's night sky. The night sky for April 2017. Well, first, what do we see in the heavens after dark? Well, the constellation of Orion is essentially setting over in the west. The upper parts of Taurus with the Pleiades cluster are still visible. And above Orion, setting towards the west, is the nice constellation of Gemini, the heavenly twins, with Cancer above and Pollux below. Down below Gemini, there's a single bright star, Procyon, which is the only bright star in Canis Minor. Moving over to the south lies Leo. We'll come back to that in one of the highlights. There's some nice galaxies, actually, just underneath the lion's belly, which, with a small telescope, you can see quite easily some of the Messier objects. In fact, over to the left of Leo, just behind his tail, is a wonderful region called the Realm of the Galaxies, the constellations of Coma Berenices and Virgo. And this is where we're looking towards the centre of the Virgo cluster of galaxies. And there are many, many Messier objects, largely galaxies in that direction. There's a bright star in the southeast. It's Arcturus, 
at the base of the constellation of Bootes. And just to its left is a little circlet of stars called Corona Borealis, the northern crown. High overhead lies Ursa Major with the plough, with the central star of the handle being Mizar, which is a double star, joined by Alcor, the rider. And in fact, with a telescope, you also see a rather faint red star up to the right of the two of them. So, not a bad month for observing the heavens. What about the planets? Jupiter comes into opposition, that's when it's due south around midnight UT, on April 7th. It's lying in Virgo, initially some six degrees above its brightest star, Spica. Visible all night, it'll be due south at an elevation of about 34 degrees as it passes through the meridian. The size of Jupiter's disk decreases slightly as we go through the month from 44.2 to 43.6 arc seconds, and at the same time, as you might expect, the magnitude reduces very slightly from minus 2.5, the peak to minus 2.4. We'll come back to Jupiter in the highlights later. Well, Saturn rises around midnight, UT, and will be highest in the pre-dawn sky. Lying in the western part of Sagittarius, its diameter increases from 17 to 18 arc seconds during the month, while its brightness also increases slightly from magnitude plus 0.4 to plus 0.3. It'll be high enough in the southeast in the hours before dawn to make out the beautiful ring system, which at over 26 degrees to the line of sight are nearly as open as they ever become. If only it were higher in the ecliptic. Its elevation this year never gets above 18 degrees, and so the atmosphere will hinder our view of this most beautiful planet. And I might just point out, I've recently acquired what's called a ZWO atmospheric dispersion corrector, just over £100, which uses two contra-rotating prisms to combat the effects of dispersion in the atmosphere, and hence give one a rather clearer image. Well, Mercury, it passed through superior conjunction on March the 7th, and on April the 1st will lie about 14 degrees above the western horizon at nightfall, when it's at its greatest elongation, that's its distance from the sun, of some 19 degrees. Then at magnitude minus 0.2, its brightness drops to magnitude plus 3 by the 18th of the month as it falls back towards the sun. It then passes through inferior conjunction, that's between ourselves and the sun, on the 20th of the month, and reappear in the pre-dawn sky at the very end of the month. With an angular size of 7.5 arc seconds on the 1st, increasing to about 11 arc seconds on the 18th, you don't expect to see any details on its disk. Mars. Well, as April begins, Mars lies in Aries, but moves into Taurus on the 12th of the month. In early April, it has an elevation of about 20 degrees above the western horizon at sunset. But this, sadly, reduces to about 11 degrees by month's end. On the 16th, it lies about 4 degrees below the Pleiades cluster, and then passes between the Pleiades and Hyades clusters on the 25th, when it lies some nine degrees to the right of Aldebaran. 
its brightness is falling very slightly from magnitude plus 1.5 to plus 1.6 during the month, whilst the angular diameter falls from 4.2 to 3.9 arc seconds. So no details will be expected to be seen on its salmon pink surface. Well, lastly, Venus. It rises in the east about an hour before sunrise on the first of the month and then climbs a little higher each morning as April progresses. On the first, the disk forming a slender crescent, nearly one arc minute tall, is just 2% lit, but still shines with a magnitude of minus 4.2. By the end of the month, Venus has its maximum brightness of magnitude minus 4.7, the angular size has reduced to 39 arc seconds, but the illuminated fraction has increased to 26%, and these two things tend to compensate. It will then have an elevation of about 13 degrees at sunrise, so it should be fairly easy to spot. So finally, what about the highlights of the month? Well, obviously, it's a great month to view Jupiter. As I said, it comes into opposition on April the 7th. It's moving down the ecliptic, and at the start of April lies in Virgo some 6 degrees above Spica. It reaches an elevation of about 36 degrees when crossing the meridian. An interesting observation is that the great red spot appears to be diminishing in size. At the beginning of the last century, it spanned some 40,000 kilometres across, but now appears to be only about 16,500 kilometres across, less than half the size. It used to be said that three Earths could fit within it, but now really it's only one. The shrinking rate appears to be accelerating, and observations indicate it's now reducing in size by about 580, maybe 700 kilometres per year. Will it eventually disappear, I wonder? In the Night Sky page, I give a list of the times when it is best to observe the great red spot. That's when it's basically lying on the central meridian. You can observe it for about an hour or so either side of that time. All those times are in UT. So just look up Night Sky, Jodrell Bank, and you'll find it. As I mentioned earlier, in the first week of April, Mercury is at its highest in the sky. It'll be seen above the western horizon after sunset and will then have an elevation of some 18 degrees. So it's an excellent week to observe what is a somewhat elusive planet. All night on April the 7th, 8th, the waxing moon closes in on Regulus and Leo. By dawn on the 8th, it comes within two degrees. On the 10th of April, again all night, the moon one day before full passes Jupiter in Virgo. It'll lie about two degrees above Jupiter on that night. On the 22nd of April, after midnight, we have a chance of observing the peak of the Lyrid meteors, if it's clear. Without any moonlight to hinder our view, and from a dark rural location, one would have a chance of observing the peak of the Lyrid meteor shower, with up to about 10 meteors visible per hour, which I agree is not a vast number. But as one might expect, the shower's radiant is close to Vega in Lara. So look up at about 45 degrees over towards the east in the hours after midnight. I do hope it's clear and you have a chance to see some. As I mentioned earlier, 
On the 25th of April, one hour after sunset, you may be able to observe Mars passing directly between the Hyades and Pleiades clusters in Taurus. So it'll be low in the west after sunset. Could make quite a nice photographic opportunity. April 28th is interesting. There's a late afternoon, early evening occultation of Aldebaran by the moon. It'll be occulted by a very thin crescent moon and will disappear behind the moon's dark limb at 19.11 British summer time, as seen from London, 19.07 BST, as seen from Edinburgh. That's parallax. It will reappear at the bright limb at 20.07 BST, as seen from London, and 19.57 BST from Edinburgh. So with a tracking mount and a telescope, there's a chance of actually observing that, but obviously make sure you get your telescope nowhere near the sun, which will be about 30 degrees away. As darkness falls, Aldebaran will be seen to lie just below the moon. And finally, I usually describe something on the moon, and on March the 5th and the 18th, the Terminator lies close to an interesting valley on the moon called the Alpine Valley. Close to the limb is the Apennine mountain chain that marks the edge of Mare Imbrium. Towards the upper end, with a small telescope, you should see the cleft across them called the Alpine Valley. It is about 7 miles wide and 79 miles long. There's a thin rill which runs along its length, but it's quite a challenge to observe. I can't say I've ever seen it, I have to say. The dark crater Plato will also be visible nearby. And you may also see the shadow cast by the mountain Mons Pitan lying not far away in Mare Imbrium. This is a very interesting region of the moon. Well, that's it. OK, the nights are getting somewhat shorter, but there's still a lot to see. And I hope you do have some chance and clear skies to enable you to do so. And for our Antipodean listeners, here's Claire Brotherton with the night sky where you are. Kia and welcome to the April Jodcast from Space Place at Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. New Zealand daylight saving ends the first weekend of the month, bringing our southern hemisphere summer abruptly to an end. On the bright side, the lighter mornings and darker nights will make it much easier to get out and do some observing. One of the first objects you'll see in the evening twilight is bright golden Jupiter, rising in the east soon after the sun sets at the beginning of the month. It slowly crosses the sky through the course of the night before disappearing in the west at sunrise. By the end of the month it will be rising well before dusk. Jupiter reaches opposition on April the 8th, meaning it will lie directly opposite the sun in the sky and be overhead at midnight. At this time Jupiter is also at its closest to Earth, but the difference in angular size and brightness is not really noticeable to the naked eye. Jupiter is always worth a look through a small telescope or good binoculars, revealing up to four of its large Galilean moons. The full moon will pass close to the planet on the 10th, 11th of the month. Jupiter sits in the constellation of Virgo, just to the left of the brightest star, Spica. Last month I mentioned that Virgo is home to the Virgo cluster of galaxies, containing up to 2,000 members. This month we'll take a closer look at some of these galaxies in more detail. The cluster's centre lies around 54 million light-years away, and it extends nearly 8 degrees across the sky. 
Many of the brighter galaxies are included in Messier's catalogue of non-cometary fuzzy objects and are easily visible with a small telescope. Perhaps the most famous member is the giant elliptical galaxy Messier 87, located close to the cluster centre. The second brightest galaxy in the northern part of the cluster, with an apparent magnitude of 9.59, M87 is easily observed with a modest 60mm telescope and is in reach of a good pair of binoculars under excellent conditions, visible as a faint, hazy patch of light. Small telescopes may reveal the galaxy's elliptical shape brightening towards the centre. M87 is one of the most massive and luminous galaxies in the local universe, estimated to contain the mass of around 2.7 trillion suns, some 200 times that of the Milky Way but only around one-sixth of this mass is in the form of an estimated one trillion stars. It is also distinctive for its large number of globular clusters, with over six times as many as our own galaxy. Close to its core is a 3.5 billion solar mass black hole, one of the most massive known, orbited by a fast-moving disk of ionized gas, which is a strong source of radiation, particularly at radio wavelengths. In fact, M87 is one of the brightest radio sources in the sky. In 1918, American astronomer Heber Curtis detected a curious straight ray extending from the galaxy's centre, which we now know is a jet of energetic plasma blasted out from the nucleus of M87 at relativistic speeds. The central black hole of M87 is actually offset from the core by around 25 parsecs in the direction opposite to the jet, suggesting that the jet may be responsible for accelerating the black hole away from the galaxy's centre. An alternative theory suggests that the displacement may have been caused by a merger with another galaxy. To find M87, draw a line from Denebola at the tail of Leo to Vindemiatrix or Epsilon Virginis, and the galaxy can be found just over halfway along, close to Virgo's border with the Coma Berenices constellation. Around 1.5 degrees back towards Leo is the M84-M86 galaxy pair, located just 17 arc minutes apart. Whilst M86 can be seen in 10 by 50 binoculars under good conditions, larger binoculars or a small telescope will be needed to pick up its companion easily. The two are visible in the same field of view, and in a 20 centimetre or larger telescope, a number of fainter galaxies can be seen nearby, including NGC 4435, NGC 4388, NGC 4402, and NGC 4438. M86 and M87 are thought to be moving towards each other for their first galactic encounter. The brightest galaxy in the cluster is the 9.4 magnitude Messier 49, located a little above M87 in our evening skies. M49 was the first member of the Virgo cluster to be found, and only the second galaxy to be discovered outside our local group. Messier 49 is interacting with the nearby dwarf irregular galaxy UGC 7636, which has a tail of debris covering 1 by 5 arc minutes of the sky. M49 can be seen in large binoculars and small telescopes, with a slightly larger telescope picking up a bright core and large halo, but an otherwise featureless view. Further around to the north in our evening sky, to the other side of Denebola, is the main body of Leo, with the constellation's brightest star, Regulus or Alpha Leonis, marking the lion's heart. Regulus is at the top of an upside-down question mark, as we see it here in New Zealand, which marks the head and mane of the lion. 
With an apparent magnitude of 1.35, the star is the 21st brightest in the night sky, but it is in fact a system of four individual stars arranged in two pairs. Regulus A is a spectroscopic binary comprising of a hot, young, blue-white main-sequence star with a tiny companion of less than 0.3 solar masses, which is probably a white dwarf. Regulus B and C make a second pairing located 177 arc seconds away from Regulus A. Resolving the B-C pair from Regulus A is a good challenge for binocular observers and certainly achievable with a small telescope. A little below Regulus is another well-known double star called Algebra, or the Main. First discovered by William Herschel in 1782, Algebra comprises a yellow-orange giant primary and a yellow-white giant secondary at magnitudes 2.3 and 3.5 respectively. The pair have an angular separation of around four arc seconds, so you won't be able to resolve them in binoculars, but with a telescope of aperture around 8 centimetres or greater, you should be able to split them. Like its neighbouring Virgo, Leo is also home to a number of bright galaxies, including the Leo Triplet, a small group of interacting galaxies consisting of spiral galaxies M65, M66 and NGC 3628. Often known as the M66 group, the Leo Triplet is located around 35 million light-years away and provides a fantastic opportunity to study galaxy interaction in our local universe. Each of the three main members shows signs of tidal disturbance, with NGC 3628 exhibiting an impressive tidal tail extending for over 300,000 light-years. The triplet is located fairly close to Denebola, or Beta Leonis, and around halfway between Cherton or Theta Leonis and Iota Leonis. Most small telescopes should be able to pick up the group. But M66, the brightest of the three, and M65, the second brightest, should also be visible in large binoculars. This month, the new moon falls on the 27th, so around this time will be the best opportunity for galaxy spotting. Moving around towards the southeast, our winter constellation of Scorpius is rising in our evening skies at the beginning of the month, and by around 11pm is joined by cream-coloured Saturn, sat a little below. By the end of the month, Saturn will be rising shortly after 8pm. The moon will be just to the left of Saturn on the night of the 16th. Venus is moving quickly into our morning skies, rising a little over an hour before the sun at the start of the month and three hours before at the end, when it will be joined in the dawn skies by faint Mercury, sat lower and to the right of bright Venus. Wishing you clear skies and happy galaxy hunting from the team here at Space Place at Carter Observatory. Thanks for that, Ian and Claire. So now on to our feedback. Do we have any? I mean, it's a bit of an edge climax, actually, because we've got no posts, no emails, no messages on Facebook. I guess that's Twitter. good. I guess people, you know... Will Maybe go. they're moving yeah, on. Exactly, you know? yeah. They'll yeah. we'll be ready to move on. Yeah. Well, all our communication channels are still open, so if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that I guess you can still send us posts. I mean, the University of Manchester's still here. Yeah. <laughs> and we're all still here as well. We're going yeah, to be you working. can still write to it's us. Just, we're fun. all going to have to get second jobs now to us. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't have the time for that. Yeah. So maybe it's a blessing in disguise, you know. It's um. Absolutely. Yeah. But there you go. I feel sorry for all those guys who are training up. 
But yes, you can still very much send us post. The address is on the website. For as long as the website lasts. Indeed. But then you might be able to find it on the um, University of Manchester website, even after ours goes. Thanks to Dr. Alessandro Navarini for the interview. The editors were Adam Avison, Claire Brotherton, Tom Scragg and Jake Morgan. The producer was Charlie Walker. Until next time. Oh, that's awkward. Hmm. Um. Well, anyway. Jordan. I'll do.